0: Uh, Bible in hand. Let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians together. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read from verses uh, 2 to 16. If you're using one of the, the Bibles in front of you, the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1152. 1152. David Jackman, uh, writing on this text, says, Some passages are hard to understand and engage the mind at full stretch as we try to work out their meaning. Other passages are hard to accept and so engage the will at full stretch as we try to respond to them in obedience. David Jackman says... This passage comes into both categories. So let's pray for God's help. Our Father, we thank you so much for the promise in Proverbs 30 that every word of yours is flawless. And we pray that as we open up your word tonight, to hear what you have to say to uh, us as a church, uh, may you grant us wisdom so that we might uh, engage deeply in our thinking and uh, willfully in our hearts, that we might obey you and walk in your ways. Uh, Please help me as preacher and these dear brothers, sisters, friends, as hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians 11, 2 and following. Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from women, but women from man. Neither was man created for women, but women for man. For this reason... And because of the angels, the women ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, let's get up to speed on where we're at in 1 Corinthians because you're smiling at me because you're like, what's he going to do with this one? I can see it in your face. You're not supposed to be wishing me to fall. You're supposed to be, come on, Liam, you can do it. We're right with you. Anyway, where are we at with Paul? This is a new section, chapters 11 to 14 in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul has previously taken us through uh, sections that dealt with uh, sex and marriage helping us to understand, what is sexual immorality? What should we do about it? Flee from it. Glorify God with your bodies. He's talked to us about idolatry, food sacrifice to idols. He's talked about the denial of personal rights and freedoms for the sake of others, so that we might worship God rightly, so that we might be sensitive to our brothers and sisters in the faith, and so build one another up up in our churches. And this new section in 11 to 14 effectively deals with orderly worship. It answers the question what should it look like when you come together as a church? And, pardon the pun, hats off to the Corinthians. (laughs) They were quite a bunch. They were quite a bunch. I mean, we've already heard throughout the course of the letter about the fact that they were lacking in wisdom, the fact that they were all in, separated in teams, you know. Yeah, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Christ. You know, this is the way they were acting. There were, there were divisions. There were factions. Uh, there was there were some pretty gross sexual immorality going on in the place. And it's in the place. A guy was sleeping with his stepmother, for example. And yet it all seemed to be quite, yeah, come on, let's worship together. But there are problems going on here that continue into verses into chapter eleven, where we see dishonorable practice by both men and women. You see that with me in verse four? Every man who prophesies prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So dishonor is what's going on when they get together to worship. They're dishonoring their head. We'll get to that in a second, what head means. But it seems to be all revolving around hats and hairstyles. I mean, it's not easy to pinpoint exactly what's being communicated. It has to be said up front when men pray with their heads covered or women's pr- women pray with their heads uncovered. But the, I suppose the first thing that we want to see is that, is that uh, what you wear communicates something. Uh, we are what we wear. Let me show you, for example. Now, you might think, even as the Masters golf tournament is on, you're thinking there is a man who knows how to swing a club, right? You're thinking, okay, he's, this, this hat is communicating that this man is ready just to tee off for the 300-yard drive. You know, you're thinking he's ready for something, all right? But what if I do that? You might think, oh, he's just out of primary seven. Look at that, you know. But worse, I mean, what if I do that? What is that? It's like I'm Jay-Z. You knew it. No, I'm going to take this off before I embarrass myself even more and I'm conscious I've just messed up my hair, but that's all right. (laughs) Anyway, do you get the point? The the different way that you wear a cap can communicate something different about yourself. it, It communicates something, okay? Something. Now, both men and women in Corinth are acting in ways regarding headwear that communicate unhelpful things, dishonoring things to their brothers and sisters in the church. This is not good practice. Verse 4, men pray or prophesy with head covered. We're not really sure what this means. It's either some kind of hangover from their pagan idolatry, where these guys would go into the pagan temples, they would put a weak corner of their toga on top of their head and just start chanting, to whatever idol it was that they were worshipping. Or else it could be a puffed up gesture of pride. Uh, There are various uh, statues and frescoes and everything in in Greco-Roman cities of the past where you see people, even like Caesar, the emperor at one point, when he gets apparently getting up to make a speech, it is a mark of his statesmanship, a mark of of his importance, that he pops the corner of his toga on top of his head before he makes a speech. It is—it's it, it, as if—it's as if I get up here and just stand up here and say, just before I read from God's word and uh, uh, just before we study the Bible together, before I preach, I would just like to say that uh, my name is actually Liam Garvey, PhD. I have a superb, top-class, honors PhD. I'm talking nonsense from <laughs> Cambridge and. Uh, I know the queen. You know, it's kind of... It's just ridiculous stuff like that. It's pompous, puffed-up gesture, right? So it's either a hangover from pagan idolatry or it's their puffed-up pride coming into the church. Either way, it's bad. It's wrong. It's dishonoring to Christ. The head. But then there's women in verse 5 who pray or prophesy with their head uncovered. What's all that about? Well, either, again, it's a pagan hangover or... It's it's something like Corinth's new woman. Uh, There are historical, again, Greco-Roman historical documents which which mention this kind of a brand of women's liberation that took place at that time. They had their little kind of women's uh, revolution. And history testifies that when uh, they were married, what happened was uh, the, the woman would take a veil over her head and it would remain there as a mark of her marriage. She wore it to show that she had a husband. She wore it to show that she was under authority. Uh, that's not an, un- an uncommon thing for us to see uh, again. Um, even when you think about it in, in a nursing world, there, again, the, the clothing communicates something. You had uh, different nurses of different degrees of qualification and so on would have different color epaulets on their shoulders, for example. Uh, the clothing was communicating that some had authority uh, more than others. But what is so, what is happening in this church in Corinth is that when they're getting together to worship God, uh, they're taking this veil down whenever they pray or prophesy. What's so crazy about that? Well, Paul says it dishonors her head, that is, her husband. And she's communicating by that act that effectively she's a free woman, that she's not under any authority. And in fact, if you take the full breadth of meaning in terms of this hangover from pagan idolatry into this practice, she's probably communicating to others around her that she's actually unmarried and sexually available. Now, it's hard to find a 21st century equivalent to this, it has to be said. Uh, that perhaps the closest thing would be to a woman getting up to pray in a church with I don't know whatever whatever cultural symbols of sexual promiscuity you want to think up I don't know somebody stands up in a bikini and starts to pray yeah you don't like the thought of it I know but I'm just saying so the question then is when it comes to hats and hairstyles how how on earth does this apply to us today what's the significance of this well if does it mean that you should all be wearing hats ladies guys doesn't mean you need to take them off well if you're understanding and your interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 and the conviction that you know in your conscience leads you to think actually convictionally I need to wear a hat then you go right ahead I've got one here you can borrow if you want one you're not dishonoring God if you do you're not sinning in any way if you do it's fine but I, I don't come to that conclusion myself I'm speaking personally here and the reason being that I think that head coverings do not have the same cultural meaning and symbolism as they did in first century Corinth as I'm thinking about 21st century Edinburgh they just don't have the same meaning in fact veils today can often communicate the opposite. I mean, those of us familiar with Muslim culture, which is where you most often see in our our culture today women wearing veils, um, will, will know that their head coverings are a sign of subservience and inequality rather than a visual reminder of authority within relationship of equal worth and value and dignity. But even when you steer clear of those kind of arguments, uh, we can see that these veils or togas back then, they're no longer symbols of one being, as it were, under authority today. Sure, brides often wear uh, veils on their wedding day, but pretty soon they try and just take it off and then that's it gone for the rest of the day, isn't it? But they they don't wear them because they're symbolic or anything. Uh, Head coverings really are... Are merely fashion accessories, are they not? Now, this doesn't mean that there are no cultural symbols. The wedding ring, perhaps, or the taking of a last name might be close to an equivalent, but really not a perfect match. Uh, Those can be culturally meaningful ways of of showing, for example, that a wife has a husband uh, in a newly constituted family in which he is the head. Uh, Certainly those who are, of a feminine, uh, uh, who are feminist in their persuasion, who refuse their hus- husband's name, demonstrate that's exactly what that convention means by their refusal. But even still, head coverings and hairstyles, familiar markers of masculinity and femininity within first century Corinth really do not maintain the same kind of distinctions, the same kind of meaning for us today. So I don't feel like my wife has to wear a head covering. But if she wanted to, that'd be fine. So, is that the end of the sermon? I mean, is that it? Well, those cultural markers aren't really cultural markers today, so we're cool. Well, no, it's not. Uh, This doesn't mean that we can dismiss 1 Corinthians 11 as some kind of, I don't know, a History Channel documentary you know, a nice wee window into first century Corinth and then close the book and then that's that. No, there are principles still, principles contained within this passage that actually transcend both time and culture to inform us how we order ourselves within family life and particularly in this context within church life. What happens when we get together as the people of God? And you'll no doubt appreciate that the thing that is vital to understanding the thread of this whole passage is understanding the meaning of the word head. Head. Because in verse 3 it says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, in recent years... Those who press for uh, 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 for identical roles of men and women, you might call that an egalitarian position, in the home and in the church, have argued that this word means uh, source, uh, not, as it's commonly been interpreted, as authority over. Um, so they'll say, it's not about authority, it's about origins. So they argue that, that Paul is using the word here in the same way that we might describe the source of a river being the head of a river. But that's, that's problematic. And you can go away and explore this for yourself there. Trust me, there are plenty of books that have been written on this. Uh, th- let me give you three short reasons of, of a few. Uh, One, extensive studies of Greek literature show that the Greek word for head, that is kephali, was used literally to refer to your head and figuratively to denote authority. Okay? Secondly, Paul's use of this word elsewhere in the New Testament, it's identified as meaning authority over simply by reading the surrounding context. It makes no sense to explain exchange it as meaning source. Then thirdly, it relates to the use of the words uh, in verse 3, in particular the section that reads the head of Christ is God. Now think about this theologically, okay? If head means source or origin, in that context you're in trouble because you've just said that Jesus Christ has been created by God the Father, and that's called Arianism. That's a heresy, okay? Uh, Jesus Christ is eternal. Eternal, always existed, never to end. So Paul isn't talking, based on those three, uh, based on those three points there, Paul isn't talking about origins. What I'm arguing is that he's using the word head to speak about authority, and that in relationships, even in amazingly in verse 3, even in the Trinity, even in the Trinity. And that's where we begin with three points of thinking through, right, how do we do this? How do we worship God when we gather together? What should be our convictions regarding our existence as a church? Well, when we gather, we should conduct ourselves in a way that, first of all, honors God the Holy Trinity, that honors God the Holy Trinity. Verse 3 says, the head of Christ is God's, And we begin by looking at this forever relationship that has always existed within God Himself. God can you put the next wee slide up actually? Because there's a a helpful picture here, I believe. Should be. God exists in Holy Trinity. That is, there is one God who exists in three persons: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity, each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are co-equal and co-eternal. Each person is fully God. Yet, there exists within the Godhead, within the Trinity, a a functional deference, a loving and a glad submission. So there is an assumption that you cannot have differences uh, and Hierarchy without having inferiority and superiority. That would be the argument of those who would not hold this view. And there are many people who don't hold to this view. But this idea of within the roles of the Trinity there is a a functional and operational submission to a degree proves that you can. Because there is no inferiority within the Godhead, within the Trinity. They are all co-equal. So one of the fallacies of feminist ideology is the belief that for two people to be equal, they must do the same thing and do all the same things. But there is an assumption that you cannot have that, these differences but you, without inferiority and superiority, but you can. Each member of the Trinity is fully God, but each member of the Trinity has this specific function. How many gods are there? One. But God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are they each fully God, equal to one another? Yes. Do they share the same attributes of God? Yes. Is there authority within the Trinity and deference to that authority? Yes. Do we not see this in the life of Jesus Christ? In places like Gethsemane? who willingly submits to the Father's will and leadership. So what does this have to do with us? What does the fact that the head of Christ is God really have to do with us? Well, the same principles at work in the Godhead, Paul is arguing here, are at work within humanity. Men and women are equal in personhood. That is, in value and in dignity and in worth. They are the same. Now that's not to say that, uh, but men—sorry, but men—and are different when it comes to men and women are different when it comes to uh, their roles and how they function. So, in other words, same in value, dignity, and worth, but different in role, different in function. Now, that is not to say that women are second-class citizens with less dignity or less intelligence, less ability, or less worth than men, far from it. Paul would have us see here that just as Jesus is not diminished in divinity and glory because he operates in a, in a functional subordination to the Father, neither is woman diminished because God has given her a head, that is, her husband. Now, the differences between men and women I would argue are obvious. They're obvious. But those who are convinced perhaps by the egalitarian position or a feminist position push back on those because they generally feel perhaps threatened or offended at such claims. But I think this is what we see in our culture despite the the push of many to see equality in every respect. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. In the 1990s, uh, Professor Gray sold 50 million copies of this book. 50 million copies. It was the highest ranked nonfiction book of the 1990s, which really just said, men and women are different. That was it. Wish I could have wrote that book, sold 50 million. Anyway, recent clinical psychology research both genders placed in a room to play with Barbie. I do not regularly carry one of these around with me, just so you understand. They had this, they just sat on the table. They, they, had, uh, they had hundreds of little kiddies come in and just see what they're going to do with this. Little boys, little girls, come in, what's going to happen? The little girls did what you would expect them to do. They came in and they started stroking the hair and they were like, hello, how are you? And, you know, And started doing all these wee girly things. Boys came in. After five minutes, what do you think the boys had figured out you could do with a barbie? Unbelievable, the number of guys. If I put her leg down like that, I can make her into a gun. Like, I'm not kidding. Clinical research. (laughs) The Dangerous Book for Boys, another recent bestseller of the last 10 years, 15 years. Uh, written by a couple of guys from Norway. I can't remember their names. But when they were in a press conference, they were asked openly, are you planning a dangerous book for girls? And the response was quite clear. No. Uh, girls are different. Girls are different. I hear it from my non-Christian friends. I don't know if it's just because they're, I don't know. I don't know. I hear it from my non-Christian friends in wherever, wherever I live, who speak with a deference to their Husbands when it comes to decision-making, who believe that, this is non-Christians, who believe that in the home, whenever daddy's home, he's the one who disciplines the child. But if he's out, it's mummy that does it. Just simple little things. That's, they're non-Christians. I see it in my kids, naturally. My little daughter, Sarah, prances around in a snow-white dress, doing twirls in the middle of the, 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 middle of the living room floor. What happens next? My two-year-old son, Will, rugby-tackles snow-white to the ground, and shouts, ah, I'm a dinosaur, like, (laughs) different, same, equal, value, dignity, personhood, worth, different roles, same, but different, same in personhood, different in roles, just like God, the Holy Trinity. So we are called, when we get together and worship, when we gather together as a church, we should be honoring God, the Holy Trinity. Secondly, honoring the Creator's intent. We read about this from Genesis chapter 2, but you see it in verses 7 to 12 in our text tonight. I don't have time to go into all of it, but we have this, this line of reasoning that Man is the image and glory of God, but the woman the glory of man. Man not coming from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So it's talking about God's design, the Creator's design in making male and female, man and woman. The order of creation to Paul is important. Again, it doesn't make uh, Eve, doesn't make any female in this room tonight, any less of a person than Adam or any male in this room but the order was important what you have in Genesis 2 is man being created realizing there was no suitable helper from among the beasts he was glad but then being given a helper who was deeply intimate with him that's where Adam says bone of my bones equal in substance both made in the image of God but with an order Adam is head called to tend the garden, called to do the work. Eve as helper. And when it all goes belly up with the fall in Genesis chapter 3, who's called to account? Adam. Even as the purpose of creation, God, uh, uh, the apostle Paul here speaks of the woman as a helper. Some say, well, I really don't like the sound of that. That sounds demeaning and denigrating in some sense. Well, think about this. What did Jesus call the Holy Spirit, whom he promised to send? A helper. Again, it's, it's, it's by no means demeaning to operate with that function. It's very godlike in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, before any blokes can get carried away with authority in this regard, this is not allowed. Paul stamps that out. Paul reminds us of two things. One, of the interdependence of men and women. Again, he's reminding them there is no sense that men are better than women. Not only are they both made in the image of God, they both need each other. Women, women might have come from man initially, but every man has come from woman ever since. And then the, 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 the quick reminder in verse 12, all things are from God. What does that mean except to say, God, who is righteous in all his ways, perfect in all that he designs, has created it this way. And effectively lays on us the call to honor what he has hardwired us to be. He created it this way. Now, I do want to stress on this thing that there is, men should not be getting carried away with authority and superiority in that regard. I like Matthew Henry's quote on this regarding adam and eve um, it's, a, it's a little bit sentimental and, and gushy but it's, it's good it's helpful he said eve was not taken out of his head to top him nor out of his feet to be trampled by him but out of his side to be equal with him in dignity and in god's image and under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him this is not subversion this is biblical headship like god The third thing, very quickly, from verses 2 and verse 16, honoring the teaching of the apostles. This is how we are kept right when we come to worship God together. Honor the teaching of the apostles. Verse 2, Paul said, I praise you for remembering me and everything, for holding to the teachings as I passed them on to you. In other words, this stuff is vital. Paul's solution to the dishonoring practice of the gathered Corinthian church was not to remove all the distinctions between men and women, but to reiterate those God given distinctions as part of the traditions that he has taught them. Traditions could easily be translated teachings in here. It isn't in Ivy. These are good things. These are distinctions that will help to shape life in the home, life in the church. And these principles, I want to argue, do not have an expiry date. They are not cultural to first century Corinth. They are transcultural, timeless. This is what God has made us to be, true for all time. And not only is it in verse 2 the teaching of the apostles, in verse 16 it's the practice of the churches. Paul says it this way if anyone wants to be contentious about this, now, (laughs) how many people do you think want to be contentious about teaching like this? In Edinburgh? sure. In our church, I hope we can talk about it lovingly, we have no other practices, what Paul says, nor do the churches of God. In other words, there there isn't a plan B. This is the way it is across the board. This isn't just some kind of weird thing that I think will work well in Corinth. No, this is the standard teaching that has gone out to all the churches. So the question for us in closing is this. What will we do when we gather together to worship God? How will we order ourselves in uh, the life of Charlotte Chapel, our local church family? Uh, Will we honor God, the Holy Trinity? Will we honor the Creator's intent? Will we honor the teachings of the Bible? I want to say that if complementary patterns of of, uh, leadership, in the family or in the church are ignored, then effectively one of two things will happen. If we, one, ignore these principles, you can end up with men dominating and frustrating women that women become doormats or women usurping men taking on inappropriate roles that God does not permit where men wimp out and sit back. That can happen. I don't think the kind of church that is produced there is fundamentally honoring to God or even attractive to outsiders. But if we don't ignore those principles, but if we secondly apply these principles faithfully, where men will take the lead to live up to their God-given, God-designed, God-honoring headship, then they will love they will lead, they will protect, they will provide, just like Jesus, they will lay down their lives for their wives in selfless humility. And they will lay down their lives for their sisters in the faith, in the church, and their brothers. And women, well, women will encourage men in their leadership. And again, I would want to stress, this does not mean that women would be, are to be passive. No, women are to be involved in every realm and in every respect that the bible does not prohibit there are many opportunities in fact the role of women in the life of this church is absolutely vital even as i even as i look out now there are many faces that i see where i'm like i would love for you to do a one-to-one with my wife because i think she would benefit from that you know titus 2 older women teach the younger women There are some of you here, women, who can preach in the context that God permits. This is not about being passive. This is not about a restriction being imposed. This is just honoring God's design for us. So will we honor God, the Holy Trinity, in our worship and in our church life together? Will we honor God, our Creator's intent, and honor the teachings of the Bible? you're here tonight and you're not a christian you must think yep they're wacky that's what i thought um i want to encourage you to realize uh, god who is the creator of all things including you and god who is the authority overall whether you acknowledge him or not has said that there is a day coming when he's going to call everybody to give an account For whether they've walked in his ways or not. Whether they've submitted to him or not. Whether they've put their faith and trust in Jesus in particular as their Savior and Lord or not. You see, we're not autonomous beings. We have a creator and we're accountable to him. My encouragement for you is to see that he has set a divine plan in place. A divine order of things. That though it might grate with cultural sensibilities... I would encourage you to look into it. Don't palm it off. But I would be glad to have a chat with you about these things. I'd be glad to have a chat with any of you about these things. I appreciate, as I said at the very beginning, this is a mind-stretching issue and an emotive issue. I've preached as my convictions allow, I can do nothing else. I entrust to you the commission to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. Go away. Explore the text. See if what I've said is true or not. If it's not, I'll apologize. But do search the scriptures to see if what i said is true and please do come and chat about it. Let's pray together.